0: Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Arthur Snell. The 9th of May, which in Russia is Victory Day, is of course a significant day in the Soviet and now Russian calendar, commemorating its victory over Nazi Germany in World War II. It's famous for those huge parades in front of the Kremlin and is perhaps a signature demonstration of Russian martial valour. But of course this year, there may be less to celebrate. Russia's war in Ukraine is going nowhere, and there are even expectations of a huge Ukrainian counteroffensive. So to understand the context and significance of Victory Day, both in general in Russia and specifically in 2023, I'm delighted to be joined by Stefan Wolf, who's Professor of International Security at the University of Birmingham and co-founder of Navigating the Vortex podcast and newsletter. Stefan, welcome.
1: Thank you, Arthur.
0: Let's start just by talking a little bit about the context. Um, of course, here in Britain, we, we live uh, in the shadow of uh, World War II analogies and memories, and it's a big part of our culture. But it's even bigger in Russia, isn't it?
1: Oh, it absolutely is. And I think the significance of Victory Day has even grown over the last uh, several years as President Putin and his inner circle have really gone to great lengths to re-establish a narrative that basically links them almost directly to the successes that um, the uh, then Soviet Union uh, had in its fight against Nazi Germany back in the 1940s.
0: For those of us in the West, we we look at this story and we find it barely credible, the idea that Ukraine is somehow a a fascist nation, particularly with its Jewish Russian-speaking president, but also quite plainly not the aggressor in this war. What's your best understanding of how Russians look at that discussion? Look at look at that framing.
1: Well, it's it's very difficult to judge that from from the outside. I grew up in in East Germany, so I have a reasonably good understanding of how all of this worked um prior to to 1989 and how important it was also in the in the East German narrative I've I've traveled to the Soviet Union as it was at the time and I've since been uh, to Russia although obviously not since uh, 2013 in that sense I I can totally see how this is a narrative that you can sell quite easily to a population that is deprived of a balance feed of uh, news and a, and a balance of uh, of views. The few contacts that I still have in uh, Russia, I mean, for them, obviously it is a very um, tricky uh, situation and one where they do not buy into this uh, uh, narrative, uh, obviously, but then at, at the same time also find themselves in an extreme uh, minority. If you want a... Uh, decade-long socialization in, into a kind of pride in what um, the Soviet Union uh, uh, achieved in the Great Patriotic War. I mean, that is very, very deeply uh, embedded in sort of a Russian understanding of um, uh, of itself. And in many ways, it goes back even, even before then. I mean, um, some people have argued this is um, almost like a... Um, a lineage that you uh, can trace there in, in the way in which sort of Russians in particular see themselves as. Really winning against all odds. I mean, whether that was um, the Napoleonic period in the uh, 19th century, whether that was the uh, civil war in uh, in Russia after the uh, Bolshevik takeover um, in in the late 1910s, uh, early 1920s, whether that was the Great Patriotic War in the in the 1940s. So I think from from that perspective, there's um, th- there are quite profound roots for that, and um, I think we have to see it in this in this broad. Broader context to understand why this narrative that Putin is now spinning about Ukraine, which obviously is is so wrong and is so different from um, any of these previous uh, experiences, why it is so resonant and and has and gains so uh, gains traction so easily in uh, large parts of the Russian population.
0: Is it important or relevant that whilst limited? There is some historical context here. What I mean is there were Ukrainians, nationalist Ukrainians, and some of those nationalist Ukrainians uh, fought alongside the Nazis. Is is, is that a significant issue, or, or is it almost irrelevant in the sense that the the, the Russian state would, would create a, a narrative, whatever the case?
1: But it is certainly convenient for Putin that he can uh, uh, draw on those historical facts. What is very inconvenient for him and which he obviously does not mention is the fact that Ukrainians also fought in very large numbers together with Russians and other Soviet uh, uh, nationalities against uh, uh, the Nazis. Uh, Ukrainians had a very widespread and quite successful partisan movements. So, so the, the guerrilla warfare that went on against Germans in territories that Germany had occupied in the 1940s uh, when, when the great patriotic war was going on. I mean, Ukrainians made enormous sacrifices in the fight against German Nazis. Uh, yeah. And so I think from, from that perspective, this is an entire part of uh history that putin now is completely uh, ignoring apart from from all the other obvious disconnects really between uh certainly the reality in which we live and the reality that that we perceive and uh what what is going on and what is being presented uh, uh to the to the russian population
0: i want to talk a bit about the 9th of may itself and and the events of the current moment and on the day that we're recording this the 3rd of may there's been a report of a, a drone attack on the kremlin uh, an allegation made by the russians that this is an attempted assassination of putin by the ukrainians now i, I don't expect either of us in in this time frame are, are going to have any uh, light to shed on what's really going on there it seems as if there is a sort of pressure and an expectation on President Putin to have, if not some kind of victory in the entire war, but at least to be able to proclaim some kind of progress, some kind of forward movement in Russia's campaign. How do you feel that that he can confront that challenge when the facts on the ground really aren't positive at all for Russia?
1: That is the, the big challenge uh, for him now. I mean, I've um, seen some of the uh, coverage of this uh, alleged um, assassination attempt. I mean, for me, this is interesting from from two perspectives. I mean, on the one hand, it might be one way in which a much more muted and um, sort of less celebratory um, uh, series of events could go ahead on the 9th uh, of May, citing security concerns, um, citing probably a concern for Ordinary Russians taking place in these, uh, uh, taking part in these celebrations, that might then lead uh, Russia to to downscale the events. It could also be a way to say that well, uh, President Putin is not going to attend because his presence would then potentially trigger uh, renewed uh, Ukrainian drone attacks. Uh, so I think that's one, admittedly quite quite speculative way of uh, uh, looking at that. And the yeah. other one, um, earlier today when I sort of saw the first coverage of that, what also struck me as really interesting was the fact that Russia really seemed to uh, embrace the fact that it was a massive success, that they had been able uh, uh, to prevent this uh, assassination attempt completely um screening out the fact that, well, how was it actually possible that Ukrainian drones could get all the way uh, uh, to uh, to the Kremlin? So, I mean, you cannot really celebrate uh, the success of uh, what are arguably quite sophisticated uh, air defenses around uh, the Kremlin and ignore the fact that Anything along the way um, basically was not able to uh, to detect, let alone take down Ukrainian uh, drone.
0: Absolutely, yeah. If you if you credit the idea that it was a Ukrainian strike, then this this um, this drone made it a made it very close, didn't it?
1: Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, if that's the level of uh, what counts for success these days in in Russia, then I mean that tells a, an even grimmer picture of um, where the Russians uh, uh, currently see uh, the war going.
0: Do ordinary Russians think that the war is going well? And and I'm struck by uh, this phenomenon of the so-called mill bloggers, but also these these talk shows where ultra-nationalist Russians talk in very kind of lurid terms about what, what should happen in the war. But in so doing, they, they seem to sort of suggest that it, that Ukraine is doing very well and that Russia needs to fight harder and, and Russia is not by any means winning. So wh- what effect do you imagine this might have on the Russian population, even those that instinctively support the Kremlin's aims? Uh,
1: again, I think this is very, very difficult to judge um, sort of from... The comfort of our respective offices here in mm-hmm. the UK I, I think the part of the problem is that it's not entirely clear to me I mean certainly part of my problem is that it's not entirely clear to me how widely these mill bloggers and uh, these talk shows are actually received in uh, in Russia so I mean what are their their audiences I mean Russia is a country with a population of roughly 140 million, how many of them are actually tuning in to these uh, talk shows? A lot of ordinary Russians, they probably don't know that much. They don't care that much. They will hear, obviously, when um, some of their uh, friends and relatives get drafted into the military, obviously, the large numbers of uh, casualties that that Russia has obviously um, sustained uh, so far. But, I mean, we mustn't forget how big a country Russia actually is and how populous uh, uh, it is. So I think in in that sense, um, if we are talking about the Russian population in general, I think they are living on a reasonably steady diet of um, fairly uh, well-manufactured Kremlin-produced news in which uh, some of the more critical comments from if you want, from the right of uh, uh, Putin and his uh, inner circle, are probably not really received that much and are probably also not that impactful.
0: Of course, an element of that is the phenomenon of the Russian conscripts and, in some cases, um, recruits into the military, into the Wagner group. Uh, Some of these people, of course, have come straight from the prison. But in general, what we're seeing is that very few of them, if any, Come from the middle classes in Moscow and St. Petersburg. Uh, so the, the the if you like the the elite of Russian society is not directly affected by this war. Is that something that is likely to change, or is is there literally no shortage of uh, young Russian men who can who from the sort of outer regions who can be forced into the the front lines?
1: I think for now there is still a reasonably steady supply because. It's not just sort of that you need literally the manpower uh, to do that. It's also that, I mean, certainly what we have seen in the um, recruitment campaign uh, last year, it's not just getting the people, it's also equipping them, it's training them. So I think there are limits in terms of how many men the Russian military can absorb at any given time. So I think from, from that perspective, there is still quite some way to go before Putin and his allies uh, really need to sort of scrape the barrel, the bottom of the barrel, if you uh, want, and uh, really bring in relatives of people who probably matter more to him than ethnic minorities in uh, faraway regions in Siberia.
0: So that's really interesting. So the issue is more about Russia's own ability to put a large army into the field than it is about uh, a a lack of if we call it that, human resources.
1: Absolutely, yes.
0: I actually wanted to turn to your substack, Navigating the Vortex, and, and a recent post that you you wrote about some of the challenges that Ukraine fe- faces, and in particular, challenges over divisions in the EU, over support for Kyiv. And um, I myself, I was just in Kyiv last week, and and you see elements of this, that there is... Uh, there is a, a sort of fracturing, uh, perhaps not in the, the the middle of the alliance, but there's a sort of sense of fracture around the edges. A sense on the Ukrainian side that uh, they're being put under pressure to win the war in a time frame that may or may not be realistic. Um, could you say a bit more about that and and the ways in which different elements within Europe see this this question of whether or not Ukraine should be pushed into entering some kind of settlement negotiations?
1: That's a really interesting uh, question. And I mean, just what we have seen sort of over the last week or uh, two, I mean, it always starts at the uh, at the periphery. In this case, sort of the periphery are also, in a way, the countries that are closest uh, to Ukraine, um, just geographically uh, speaking. Yeah. I mean, we had the massive debates uh, there in um, five of the EU member states about uh what to do with Ukrainian grain? Should it be possible to have transit uh, through uh, EU countries? Should EU countries be a potential market? What will that do for the you know, very uh, tricky issue of uh, EU agricultural policy? I think it also foreshadows in a way how difficult it will actually be to negotiate accession to the EU uh, for uh, Ukraine. Then at the same time, we had the um, issue of, well, will the EU finally get its act together in terms of having a joint procurement of ammunition uh, for Ukraine? Now, that issue seems to have been uh, sorted out now. But again, it came after quite significant discussions within the EU in terms of who would actually benefit from the enormous amount of money that will also go into that? I mean, the various figures that are being banded around, it's like 500 million, a billion, and so on and so forth. So there are very significant economic stakes uh, um, that individual EU member states uh, have. And all of that, of course, then um, you have to add to is the fact that It is very costly. It is not universally popular among um, uh, European citizens and European voters, uh, uh, for that matter, uh, who see, rightly or wrongly, a lot of money being spent on propping up Ukrainian defenses when there are all kinds of other problems that um, uh, the EU has itself. And then if you want, at the more geopolitical, uh, geoeconomic level, it's a real problem in terms of what that does um, with relations uh, with China. It's important for China to not uh, fracture its relationships uh, with the EU, but the EU sort of has economic interests in China and it has uh, strategic interests with the US. So in all of that, having sort of the Ukraine uh, war as a real headache um, going on, you can see how a lot of... uh, um, politicians would just wish that to go away and yeah. if ukraine can't win quickly enough then um i think there is a sense now that well maybe we should give the chinese mediation maybe we should give that a chance and see uh whether that leads us anywhere um where we can just remove that one issue from uh, an already quite loaded and complex and um a burdensome agenda uh, that the EU is trying to negotiate with itself, with its member states, uh, with its allies um, in NATO in the United States, but also with um, uh, China, which remains a very important economic partner.
0: Will EU countries at some point say to Ukrainians, for example, well, you've had enough from us. Actually, it's now time to draw this conflict to a close you may you may not have got everything you want but you know life's like that is it is that something we we foresee or is it more of a sort of open-ended commitment to support them for as long as they need the support
1: i would say it's an open-ended commitment for now which means that it's probably not really an open-ended uh, commitment but it's also very difficult to even guess or speculate um, how long either side can hold out. How long can the Russians take the kind of losses that they have uh, uh, taken? Um, I mean, at what point will the sheer demographic weight that they can throw into this conflict really wear out the Ukrainians? Because, I mean, we often talk about uh, sort of Bakhmut, this very contested uh, uh, city in, in Donbass as a as a meat grinder and the massive losses that the Russians have taken there. But we also shouldn't forget that the Ukrainians have taken significant losses there as well. So I think at, at some point the question will also be, well, how long will the Ukrainian public support uh, uh, the war? At which point will they actually think, well, is it really worth fighting over those territories over um, those people who are arguably, some of them at least in, uh, in the now Russian-occupied um, territories, may indeed feel closer uh, uh, to Russia. So I think at, at some point, I mean, the, the saying goes, every war ends at the negotiation table, and I think the Ukrainian war will end there too. The question is, what will be the terms that will be negotiated who will actually have to sign up to those terms in the end? And that will be initially, of course, Russia and Ukraine, but I think the Chinese have a major stake in this now. Um, The EU has a major stake in this now, all the NATO members, US, UK. I mean, everybody now becomes a stakeholder, not just in the war, but also in the outcome of the war. And that in turn then makes it uh, even more difficult to find a settlement that um, people will be happy with
0: on those fascinating, but at this stage, unanswerable questions. That seems like a great place to end this discussion, but I'm sure we may uh, reconvene at some future point to see where we've got to. But for the meantime, Stefan, thank you so much for joining us today in the bunker.
1: Excellent. Thank you so much, Arthur. Goodbye.
0: Remember, The Bunker is free to download, but if you like what you're hearing and want to make sure there's more where this came from, then you can back us on Patreon for as little as £3 a month and help us to keep bringing you great podcasts. Thank you for listening.
1: Hello, I'm Ros Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now? The politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in a New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? That's Oh God, What Now? with me, Roz Taylor, Raphael Baer, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann-Ramirez, out now, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: The Bunker Daily was presented by Arthur Snell. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The managing editor was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Kajos Tomishevich, Chris Jones. Audio production was by Simon Williams and me, Alex Reese. Art direction by James Parrott. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.